Hello and welcome to the podcast for the May issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Elena Becker-Barossa to discuss some of the issue highlights. Welcome Elena. Thank you Richard. Elena, let's start with some post hoc analysis of the Adagio study and this concerns treatment for Parkinson's disease. Before we go into the details of what you're publishing in TLN this month, can you just remind listeners what the original Adagio study trial set out to do and, and what it has already reported so far? Adagio is the attenuation of disease progression with Asilect given one's daily trial, and uh, its primary outcomes were reported in 2009. Adagio tested the efficacy of rasagiline, which is an inhibitor of monoamine oxidase type B, in the treatment of patients with Parkinson's disease. It is considered a landmark trial in the movement disorders field because the trial sought to provide information not only on whether the drug had symptomatic benefits, but also on whether it slows the underlying progression of Parkinson's disease. Importantly, Adagio was designed also to find out whether the drug had disease-modifying properties. It was done by use of what is known as a delayed start trial design. So what were the objectives of this post-hoc analysis that's been published in 2011 in the Lancet Neurology? As I said, the results from Adagio provided some evidence to suggest that rasagilin might have disease-modifying effects. Early treatment with rasagilin at a dose of 1 mg per day provided benefits that were consistent with a possible disease-modifying effect. Paradoxically, early treatment with rasagilin at a dose of 2 mg per day did not. So given these mixed messages extracted from the trial, I think this additional information that the journal is publishing is particularly important to understand what's going on. Is rasagilin truly providing a neuroprotective effect? And what the Adagio investigators are reporting now are lots of interesting data that were not included in the main publication. So go on and briefly cover the methods and, and key findings. Adagio used both a 1 milligram dose and a 2 milligram dose for 72 weeks in the early start group or placebo for 36 weeks and then rasagilin for another 36 weeks in the delayed start group. Several post-hoc outcomes are explored here. These are the need for additional anti-Parkinsonian therapy, changes in non-motor experiences of daily living, changes in fatigue scales, and changes in unified Parkinson's disease rating scale subscores. Some of these findings are confirmatory, such as the anti-Parkinsonian efficacy of rasagilin. But other findings, Richard, I found quite interesting especially that on the possibility that the progression of the disease might be better captured by scores obtained by asking patients about their daily living than by motor scores obtained by the physician. I think that's quite remarkable. Elena, what conclusions can be drawn at this stage and how has this latest post hoc analysis helped our understanding about the action of this drug? Well, I think it is clear now that rasagilin can delay the need for other anti-Parkinsonian drugs in these patients. What might not be still so clear for many is which score is the best to measure disease progression, which I believe is a very important issue that warrants further investigation. Can you comment on the comment that we published alongside uh, the article this month, Elena? This is an interesting comment by Angelo Antonini from the San Camilo Center in Venice on what he calls the conundrum of neuroprotection. The comment calls for a better understanding of the disease before symptoms have developed. Antonini thinks that the ideal way to test the effectiveness of any neuroprotective agent might not be by use of motor scores, but rather by understanding better disease progression and treating people at risk. For instance, by testing these drugs in patients with REM sleep disorder, who we know are at high risk of developing a neurodegenerative disease, or in people carrying mutations with high penetrance. Next, Elena, let's discuss a fascinating-looking study, and this is looking at 
various risk factors that contribute to the emergence of multiple sclerosis in children. What sort of risk factors is this study looking at? Our knowledge on the genetic and environmental factors that lead to multiple sclerosis in adults is scarce. But our understanding on the risk factors that cause the disease progression in children is even worse. That's one of the reasons why I think this article is such a great contribution. Also because the study addresses the important question of whether the current diagnostic criteria for this disease in children have any prognostic value. Summarise, if you would, briefly the methodology. And this is a a cohort study done in Canada, isn't it? This is a prospective study that includes a cohort of more than 300 pediatric patients recruited in 16 Canadian centres that is nationwide with acute demyelinating syndrome who were followed up for a median of about three years. Correct me if I'm wrong, the main point here from these researchers is to create a risk algorithm, isn't it, that can be actually used clinically in the field of MS? That's correct, Richard. On the basis of all the evidence from the different variables under study, the investigators propose an algorithm that allows the stratification of patients according to the risk to develop multiple sclerosis. Very important conclusion. In other words, this algorithm can help neurologists in identifying children at high risk of developing MS. I think a very relevant finding here is that the presence of MRI abnormalities is a good predictor of MS in these children and that also as in adults, many of them had oligoclonal bands in CSF and carry the same HLA allele that predisposes to the disease in adults. And what do the authors actually conclude from the study? The authors conclude that the risk of MS in children can be stratified according not only to the presence of the HLA allele, as I mentioned before, but to other risk determinants also, such as previous Epstein-Barr virus infection and low serum concentration of vitamin D. And as I mentioned before, Brain lesions in MRI and oligoclonal bands in CSF might likely be predictive of clinical onset. A favourable comment alongside this article as well. Do you want to just mention that? In his commentary of this article, Manuel Comabella from the Valdebron Hospital in Barcelona points out the important implications of this study for clinical practice. The most important one being the development of the algorithm that we have discussed before. This is important because it could help identify those patients at increased risk of MS at the time of a first event that is suggestive of CNS demyelination. I like the optimistic tone of this commentary, as our knowledge increases on the genetic and environmental factors that determine the risk of MS, predictive models will be able to incorporate new predictors and hence will guide clinical practice. Next, Elena, let's discuss briefly a review of the appropriate management of epilepsy in adults. One thinks of epilepsy, one thinks of seizures. How common are seizures in the general population and how often do seizures then lead to an epilepsy diagnosis? They are very common, Richard. According to the authors of this review, Emilio Peruca from the University of Pavia in Italy and Torbon Thompson from the Karolinska Institute, 10% of people will have at least one seizure during their lifetime and out of those, a fair will develop epilepsy. Obviously, we are talking here about a very, very common neurological disease then with a high prevalence. And unfortunately, as these authors point out, even in high-income countries, many of these people will never receive a diagnosis and many of those who are diagnosed with epilepsy do not receive optimal treatment. The way people are treated with epilepsy is often influenced by various other sort of factors. Do you want to give some examples? Thanks for asking this, Richard, because the authors have done a great job in discussing these key clinical questions, the most important issues that affect the management of these patients and therefore their outcomes. For instance, when should pharmacological treatment start? 
what is the right drug that the neurologist should choose for the initial treatment of a specific patient. If that fails, what should be done? Very important also, how should patients who are seizure-free be managed? Should their treatment be withdrawn? And how should risk and benefits be analyzed in these patients? Very relevant questions that are all responded in great detail by these authors. I think all with interest in the management of patients with epilepsy should check out this very helpful paper. They won't be disappointed. I think they will find it very, very helpful. Yes, we want everyone to read this review. It's a really comprehensive review. But we'll just give a hint. In terms of the conclusions that are drawn by the authors of this review, the take-home message I took was one about if you like, individualised treatment because the needs of patients vary so much. There isn't just one standard way of treating people with epilepsy. That's absolutely right, Richard. The main conclusion here is that the key to a successful outcome is individualised therapy tailored to the individual's seizure type and the particular needs of each patient. For instance, treatment should not be the same for a woman of childbearing age than that of an older patient or for a patient with other comorbidities, etc. The good news is that many epileptic drugs are available and these drugs can be used as monotherapy or in combination and hence it should be feasible to tailor pharmacological therapy to the needs of every patient and the risks and benefits of every therapy should be assessed for every patient at diagnosis and reassessed on a regular basis according to how the patient responds to the therapy. Well, many thanks, Elena. Some great detail there. But those are some of the highlights from the May issue of The Lancet Neurology. Elena, many thanks. I think think you've deserved a glass of water. Thanks to you, Richard. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next month.